We are in a series in 2 Kings, if you join me there, that's talking about one of those who was carried home to heaven, and that is Elijah. We've been studying his life, and now we're following it up with a little bit more on the life of those men, that man who succeeded him, that is Elisha. So if you join me, we're going to 2 Kings, and we're going to jump to about chapter 6 this morning, is about where I'm going to catch up with you as we'll look at a few different things. Elijah and Elisha are two characters that, that are kind of different from many of the characters in history. For example, let me share what I mean. Back in the early 1900s, there was a fellow that some of you have heard about. His name is Gregory Rasputin. He came into the scene in Russia when the uh, Romanov family was still the czars, the Caesars of Russia in that early part of the 1900s. Nicholas was on the throne. He had had four daughters. He and his wife is of a German descent. That Alexandra, they had had the four girls, and they wanted an heir, a male heir to the throne. Finally, their boy was born. Everybody was excited. But six weeks after the boy was born, they discovered that the boy had the deadly disease of hemophilia. At that time, there was, the treatment was very limited. At that time, it would be very, very painful. There was a lot of possibilities of the child being hurt and injured. And the boy went through a period of times where he would have sickness and almost die. This monk comes along. His name is, as I said, Rasputin, comes along and interjects himself into the royal family by claiming that if he were the one allowed to pray for the boy, the boy would all of a sudden get better. And it happened. How it happened, we don't know. But there were several documented cases where the boy was almost dying and Rasputin would come and pray over the boy and the boy would recover. And the doctors couldn't explain, nobody could explain. Well, Rasputin took it upon himself saying, I am the only one keeping your son alive. The parents were desperate. Not only desperate for their own personal love and, and care for the boy, but for the entire dynasty of the family. And so they allowed this Rasputin into their inner circle and he became a manipulator. He became a corrupt influence. He got generals thrown off of their positions and people that would be kind to him, he got replaced. He all of a sudden had really, really good officials kicked out of their public office and replaced with people that were as decadent as Rasputin was. He was a man that brought the nation to the point of the revolution. As one of the historical writers of that time period wrote, without Rasputin there never would have been a Lenin. The people would have continued on, but this man made the corruption so much worse. In an opposite way, here are two men of God that are truly men of God, Elijah and Elisha. They take an empire, they live in a region where there's a nation that the leaders are concerned, but the leaders themselves are already corrupt. And they're trying to pull them back to a place where those leaders are following the Lord. And the two of them had a tremendous impact and an influence upon those people around them. They wanted good officials. They wanted the people to do what is right. Totally opposite of that Rasputin, these men sought to get the peoples of their time to follow the Lord God Almighty. Well, we already commented that what happened is God had removed Elijah from the scene by taking him up into heaven with that fiery chariot and whirlwind into heaven and left behind his successor, who is named Elisha. Elisha has then been ministering for a period of time. And there's a number of different events that happened. All of the stories combined are helping us to understand if we were living in that time period that God had their accounts recorded so as to encourage people to follow the Lord, to be faithful to the Lord like these men were, but also to see what their impact when they had the nation and the ears of the people and the people did right how God would bless the nation. Their story is all designed to help us 
as well generations later to understand that we need to follow the Lord. We need to obey. Now in Elisha's case, there's a lot of stories starting with chapter 3. And it goes through his lifetime and it gives a number of his miracles, twice as many as Elijah. Some of those miracles are a little bit strange. Some of them throw us for a loop. There's the one story that I wanted to just point out. I read in chapter 5, well, let me back up a little bit. I wanted to get before that. In chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, in chapter 2 it says, and he went up, it's talking about Elisha. He went up from thence unto Bethel, and he was going up by the way. There came forth little children out of the city. I'm reading now King James Version. If you have another translation, some of your words may be a little bit different, but bear with me as I read. There came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. He turned around, turned back, looked on them, cursed them in the name of the Lord, and there came forth two bears, out, she bears out of the woods, and tear forty and two children of them. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria, and that's it. Now that's not one of those children book stories, those Bible story books that you typically want to read to your kids and leave it at that. <coughs> so it throws us for a loop a little bit. How is this man of God ripping apart forty-two kids? Understand a few facts that when you dig down deep, and maybe your translation is already pointed out, that when he talks about the young children, in the Hebrew it doesn't necessarily mean little kids. The words that are used here in the Hebrew were used by Saul to describe Saul when he was of age to be anointed king as a young man. When Solomon comes before the Lord <coughs> and he says that I need your wisdom, and Solomon is pushing 40 years of age, he calls himself this katan na'ar. And so he uses that term as being a young man in his mind. I, I, by the way, I think in my mind, I am a katan na'ar. Okay, my body says not, but my mind says I'm young. And so the term doesn't necessarily mean like the King James brings out little, little kids. It's young adults. It's young men. Now when it describes them, we don't know who they are. If this area, there had been a worship center for God, but now there is also a worship center for Baal. <laughs> so are these devotees to Baal? Or are these just a group of thugs that are coming around and giving a lot of hassle? Many commentators think the former. They think that somehow they're, tie, they're tied in with Baal worship, excuse me. That with the Baal worship, that they're there <coughs> and they're devotees and they're making fun of worshiping the Lord God. The words that they use are more than just a simple teasing. There is an implication here that when they say, <coughs> I prayed that this wouldn't happen, <coughs> and the Lord's not answering right at this moment, so you pray a little bit too. Otherwise, you're going to start coughing and feeling it as well. The, uh, when they say go up, it means could be a couple different things. Get out of here. Just simply get out of the way. We don't want you here. Or the idea could be we want you to go up to heaven like Elijah did, so you're out of here. Or it could be that they're mocking that whole idea and they're just saying, yeah, yeah, go up to heaven, go up to heaven, just like Elijah did, making fun and discounting Elijah's uh, ascension into heaven. We don't know exactly what it means, but we do know that whatever they said <coughs> and the way they said it, it was wrong in the eyes of the Lord and in Elijah. Now when they say, thou bald man, thou bald head, I'm sensitive to this one, okay? <laughs> So when he says thou bald head, understand in that culture, in that context, what they could be doing. They could just be making personal mockery of him. They could just be teasing and just, you know, ripping him apart. Or in those days that some of those who were lepers were not supposed to cover their heads but to keep their head bald. 
as a sign that they were leprous and not only calling out. And so <coughs> in this area of the world and in some of the surrounding areas, shaving your head bald was a sign that you had something, some disease. And so they could be using this as a real form of detestable idea that you're a reject in society. And understand also that in the, even in the Old Testament, if somebody purposely shaved their head, they were no longer qualified for ministry. Now, natural baldness wasn't the case. But in like the Roman Empire, natural baldness did, did, did in some of those ancient empires say you were disqualified from serving in the priesthood. So they, in their pagan background, they may have had that idea baldness was you're, you're not to be serving the Lord. And so it was a negative thought that they could be presenting. And the idea is just, you know, you're not, you're not a one worthy, you should get out of here. And so the, the whole point is Elijah is going to prove to all the people nearby that hear about this that he is legitimately a prophet of God. It occurred right after he's replaced Elijah. And so he's legitimately the prophet. He can call down judgment like Elijah called down judgment in the no rain for those period of times, that God is behind this man of God, these young men who are threatening him, who are accusing him, who are attacking his ministry. There is very clear proof that the bears come out, they attack, they do their thing under the guidance and the direction of God Almighty and punishment of those who were antagonistic towards the preaching at that time. And then the next chapter picks up with the king calling for Elisha to be his advisor. And so the story is setting up Elijah, Elisha as the legitimate, recognized prophet of God. It's not a story about he's a mean old man that is against kids, and he's the modern-day Scrooge. Okay, well, he would be the ancient version of Scrooge. Okay, the idea is this is a man that is God's anointed at that moment for that time period. That's the gist of the story. There are other stories that are there that, that are really interesting, and it's tough to figure out some of what they're getting at. The two stories in chapter 6 that are back-to-back, -back, to me, individually, they had a lot of information, but together they had profound information. That's what I want to focus on this morning. Go to chapter 6, that as we get a series of different events that happen in his life, in chapter 6 it's interesting. It starts off with a story that <coughs> deals with mundane matters. In 1 Kings chapter 6, watch what he does. He starts telling about what happens as things are going on. The sons of the prophets of Elisha, you know, he said, said Elisha unto them, Behold now, the place where we are dwelling with, with you, it's too straight, it's too narrow, it's too confining for us. Let us go, we pray, the end of Jordan, and take thanks every man a beam, and let us make a dwelling place there, that we may dwell. And he answered, Go ye. And one said, Be content, I pray thee, and go with the servants. And he answered, I will go. And so they went with them, and they come to the Jordan, and they cut down the wood. But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried, Oh no, alas, master, for it is borrowed. And so the story is, is setting the scene. And it's just very simple. The prophets at this time have, have grown. The ministry has prospered to the point that Elijah, Elisha is welcomed into the palace, that they are growing in number, that they need more people. Remember, just, just a few chapters before, they were hiding in caves. 
So now being in the school of prophets, going to this Bible college, it was something that was acceptable and it was popular and they're outgrowing their place of residency. So they go and build a new residency down by the Jordan River. And as they're building this river, the one man who's cutting the tree down, all of a sudden the axe head flew off. And he's really distraught. He calls out, alas master, we're going to see that phrase repeated again. And he's very upset. Now understand why he's upset. Okay, in that time period, in that, set, in that setting, this is an expensive tool. He didn't have the money. He's a college student. He doesn't have the money to get his own. He had to borrow one. This is, you know, high-tech stuff. This isn't like going to Lowe's and replacing it. You know, okay, yeah, yeah, I was borrowing somebody's rake and it broke, and I can just run down to Lowe's in a matter of 10 minutes, come home and have a new rake. You can't do that in those days. There was no Lowe's. There was no Home Depot. This iron was, a, was somewhat of a rarity. Let, let me see if I can give you an, an, a, a comparison. This would be like you borrowing something from your neighbor. You're going out in the woods. You're going to cut down the tree. And it's, it's not the chainsaw. You borrowed something really expensive. And that is like you borrowed their pickup. And it rolls down and goes into the river. And you're going to go, alas, Lord, now what do I do? This, this young man is feeling that pressure, that, that um, lack of care. And so he's very upset. And he says in the next verse, as you read through, he says it's fallen in the water. Elisha does not have the perception given to him by God to know exactly where it is. He just says, where is it? Where did it fall? And then it says that he takes a stick and he uses the stick and then he puts it, you know, he throws the stick on the water and as a result, now some have commented, they said, what did he do with the stick? And here's the interpretation of a couple commentators, that with the stick he poked around and he lifted the axe head to the top. So it's him that made the axe head float with the stick and the miracle was that God kept the stick from breaking. Okay, that is not what the text says. Okay, the text just says, says that, okay, what he did is, is eventually he says by throwing the axe head that the axe head floats like the stick is floating. And you all know, we all know that iron doesn't typically float like this, like an axe head, it would go to the bottom. And so it's recovered. There's excitement by the young man who felt totally responsible. He's out of debt. He's out of somebody else's, you know, ire. And he's excited. Why is that recorded? Why does he give that much information about something so small and insignificant? Because I think there's a big lesson here. The big lesson goes along with the next story, which is as you compare the next story, it's almost like the pendulum swings to the other size in the idea of magnitude. But they both say the same thing. The next story, if you read through it, so I just give you a capstone of it. What happens is they're being attacked. Now time has passed. Ben-Hadon is the leader of the nearby Arameans and they're starting to attack Israel. His idea is I'm going to send in some parties. They're going to sneak in through some of the wadis and the different air area and they're going to come in and they're going to raid the Jewish territory and then they're going to go back out. And so I'm going to send my marauding armies in. They'll attack and they'll come back. They'll attack and they'll come back. But what happens is Elisha is given insight. He knows when the army is coming. He knows where they're coming. He informs the king, the Jewish king, and his, his soldiers exactly where the enemy is trying to sneak into the land. 
And the, the result is whenever they try to sneak in, all of a sudden they're facing some fortification and some army that's resisting them and the sneak attacks aren't working. And so Ben-Hadad, this happens several times, Ben-Hadad is back in his palace and he assumes that somebody in his palace is telling the enemy his plans. One of you, one of you is a spy. Which one of you is a spy is basically what he asks of his troops, of his council. And as you read in the text, well, his officers respond. They say, no, none of us are a spy, but there's a prophet in the land. The prophet Elisha is telling the Jewish generals and the king, and even whatever you say in your bedroom chamber, that prophet somehow knows that if we made plans in the secret, secret parts of your bedroom chamber, they would be unveiled. Their God is giving, in, uh, giving them information about our secret attacks. So the king's response. The king, now if you read the account as I'm going through, look down next couple verses. The king decides I'm going to send an army in and they're going to capture that prophet. We're going to get him out of there. But we're going to send the army in at nighttime because we're going to sneak up on the prophet. And we're going to capture him at night in the city of Dothan. Think this through. The reason they want to capture him is he can tell all your secrets and now you're trying to sneak up to him. Ben Haydad, put right next to it, dummy. Okay, that's, you know, in the sense of he's trying to do something that it's already been proven he can't do something secret against Elisha. God's unveiling it. So what happens is Ben Haydad's army comes in. They come to the city of Dothan and they surround the city and so in the early morning when Elisha and his servant get up and they start going about the early morning stuff of waking up and water on their face, whatever, the prophet's servant walks out and looks and he sees this vast army of Ben-Hadad's come and surround the city. And the prophet, uh, the, the servant runs back and he says, alas, my master, same terminology, alas, what are we going to do? The enemy is here. We understand that they're coming after you, and since they're coming after you, they're coming after me, and he's panicking. And so Elisha prays at this moment, and he says, God, please, okay, open the eyes of my servant that he can see beyond just the physical. And God allows the servant to see, do you remember what he sees? He sees the army of God an angelic army that has surrounded Ben-Hadad's army. And so here's the, the servant is just amazed that God in the spirit world has sent his own army. They're there to protect. And Elijah then, Elijah prays and he says, God, just like I prayed that my servant's eyes would be opened, now I'm going to pray that the enemy's armies be closed. Eyes, the, enemy, the eyes of the army yeah, you know what I'm saying, okay? The enemy's blinded, that their eyes are closed. He prays that, and they're blinded. The entire army out there is blinded, and Elijah walks out to them, and he basically presents himself as willing to help them out. Who are you guys looking for? What can I do for you? And whatever the conversation is, you know, we're after Elisha. Well, I'll take you to him. And so Elisha takes these blind men. Now how they're walking, we don't know. Sometimes they're pictured with hands on each other's shoulder in front of them and moving. Sometimes they're like the kiddie garden groups that were over, were overbound our building. 
You ever see the teachers and their wisdom? They take the kids from this area to that area. They all have them to hang on to one of the jump ropes and they just kind of march on. Were they doing that? Were they grabbing the spear of the guy in front and just marching along? We don't know. But the scene is this army is helpless. They're following the man they came to capture, to capture and he leads them to a spot. He leads them to the capital city of the Jews where the king is. And so all these fellows all of a sudden are like, you know, here they are, they're, they're prisoners to the prophet that they came to arrest, they came to capture. He takes them to the capital city and when the king of Israel sees this army blinded brought into the courtyard of his palace, he's so excited. Not only have we been beating the enemy, but now we captured his army. Yay, we've won a battle without shooting an arrow. This is amazing. And he asks Elisha, should I kill him now? Okay, he's excited. And Elisha responds, he says, if you captured a POW, would you kill somebody that's unarmed? Uh, And so he says, don't kill him. What I want you to do instead is I want you to feed all these guys. Now I gotta admit one thing. Feeding your enemies is not the best military strategy, strategy, right? But this is what happens. They feed them. In fact, if you look at the text, it says that they're filled full. Now, understand in culture, if you lived back in Bible days, if somebody were your enemy, one of the ways you disarmed them is if you showed them hospitality. Cultural law says you cannot attack them. You can, you know, the vengeance is done. If you've accepted and you've given and accepted hospitality back and forth, so there's the unwritten laws of ancient Near Eastern, that's the A&E that I throw up here at times, the ancient Near Eastern hospitality that says they can't attack you. So in, in essence of using cultural law, he's just disarmed that entire army, who by the way has gotten their sight back because he's prayed that their sight comes back. And so what happens is these people, they're given great provisions, it says. They're given a lot of food. And they go back to their master. And the story wraps up. And it says in the, in the end of the account, and it says, and he prepared, verse 23, great provisions. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. They went to their master. So the bands of the Assyrians came no more into the land of Israel. It ended the conflicts. It ended the warfare. It's all over with. Why? Because he overcame their attacks by heaping coals of fire upon their head, doing good to them, basically. And so they find peace. What do the stories tell us? What are, they, what, are, what are they about? Are they about how we're supposed to deal with people we don't like? God, blind them. And we'll lead them to some place where they can't do me any harm. Okay, is that what the story's about? Is the story about, you know, that we could go down to the river and make axe heads float? Is the story about, I think the story is about this. I think the two stories have to be understood together. Not independent, but together they give us some amazing information about God Almighty. They tell us, number one, God is real. It's very clear, God is real. Now for those of you sitting here, the vast majority of you, this isn't news. 
You're here because you believe God is real. But if you were Jewish people who were back in those days and you were questioning whether Jehovah is the God or whether Baal is the God, and if you were in the palace, the capital city, and you were still in the court of the king and you were debating, should I follow the God of my ancestors? Should I follow Baal? You just got a message when you see the enemy army brought in, blinded, prayed by the prophet, they get their sight back, and all of a sudden we have world peace. You've just been, God is real. These stories that we hear about, what happened in Egypt, what happened in the Jordan River, it's real. Our God is alive and well. That's an information piece that for them it was very important. By the way, for us today, it is very important. God is real. He's alive. That's an important message, okay? And the Syrian soldiers, they for sure, they, they've lost their sight, they've got their sight, they know God is real. God really cares. God really cares. Okay? In this story, in both the stories, I think that's the overriding theme. That God really cares. God really cares about his children. In so much that in the New Testament, this theme, this message comes up and it says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. And it's a message that through the ages, God's people, God's kids need to be reminded you and I need to be reminded our God really cares. Doesn't mean that we won't have problems. Doesn't mean that enemies may not come against us and threaten us. Doesn't mean that axes and things will fall apart. But our God cares. Our God really does care. Let me, let me point out something. Okay, there's a story that comes out that kind of, kind of anecdotally just kind of capsulizes this. They're doing a road construction out in California. And the believer who's in charge of the construction, the supervisor, he's going through and marking what trees are supposed to be taken down, what trees. And he noticed in one tree that there was birds that were there that were nesting and the, the baby birds hadn't gotten out. And it wasn't a tree that was essential to go right away, so he marked it not yet. And he had marked other things. And so then... You know, weeks went by, and the birds were gone, and so it was marked, that tree was felled after the birds were gone, and this man, when he came back through, he saw that the nest had fallen out, and he knew that the birds were gone, the tree now was felled, and he noticed something that caught his, there was a glimmer, you know, paper that glittered that was part of the nest. And when he reached down and pulled that paper out of the nest, it was a Bible verse. Cast your cares upon him, for he careth for you. How ironic yeah, but that man said that was a God message for me. Just as a reminder how God cares for us. Can I, can I point out some things about God's care from this text? God really cares about the needs of all his children. He cares about the needs of all his children. What I mean by that is simply this. Okay? God cared about the needs of the nation as a whole. That he would reveal the enemy's attacks. God cared for the needs of his prophet, his lead prophet, that he would send the angels to protect him as needed, that he would, he would listen to his bidding to create temporary blindness and then restore sight. God cared for the nation. God cared for the lead prophet. God cared for some anonymous Bible student, college student, that we don't know who he is. He doesn't, we don't know of any significant role that he played in future history, but he had a need he wanted to do what was right and he knew that he was responsible for something that he had lost and he says, please help me out, man of God. And God cared for that anonymous young man. God cares for all types of people. 
You go into the previous stories and see if this is not the case. That in the previous chapters, two cha in chapter 4, we're given two stories of two ladies. That one lady, it says that she is a widow. Her husband has just died. She has two boys. She doesn't have any money, but she has debt. And the debtors are coming to take her kids as slaves, as debtor slaves. She comes to the prophet, and she says, I need your help. He says, do you, what do you have in your house? And she says, all I have left in my house is one bucket of oil. He says, go and get other buckets. Go get other pails. Go get other items. Collect as many as you can. She collects from neighbors. She borrows. She brings in as many as there are. She and her boys get them. And the prophet says, now pour from the one bucket that you have the oil, pour it into all those that you brought. And as many as in faith that she collected, she fills up all of those empty borrowed vessels. And she says, you know, miraculously, this is like the feeding of the thousands, that it just keeps on multiplying this oil. And then the prophet says, now go and sell all that you've poured out in all this additional oil you now have. She goes and sells, and the text says that she paid off her debt and the rest she could use to live on. God provided for this, this widow that other people couldn't care less about, who had nothing. She was, had nothing to offer. God cared for her. The next story, right on, its, right on its tail, is a story about, it says, a great woman, a woman who is coming from a family of reputation and resources. Her husband and her have land. Her husband's alive. God provides that she has a child, that she's able to care care for the prophet, <coughs> excuse me, build a special chamber just for the prophet. As a result, she's able to bear a child. The child gets sick, and the child collapses in the field. They take her home, and while she's holding her one and only child, the child dies. She says to servants, you know, you know saddle the donkey, get the chariot ready. We're headed to find the prophet. And she goes and finds the prophet, and he works through his assistant, and eventually the boy is restored. My point is this. Here is a great woman of wealth and reputation who has lots. Here is somebody who has nothing, who would be ignored and overlooked. God cares for all types of people. Let me give you another thought that strikes me out of this text, that talks about how God cares. God not only cares for all his children, God cares about his children at all times. At all times. What I mean by that is this. In this story, with the story of the axe and a floating being lost in the water, it's a time of prosperity for the prophets. They are doing well. They have the ability to be able to build a new type of, worship, uh, of center for teaching, a new school. So it's not like they don't have anything. Now the young man doesn't have anything, but they're enjoying prosperity. They're enjoying success. They're enjoying some growth. And then you have the nation that's facing national crises. They're fa facing a situation that could destroy their nation with these attacks. The prophet, his life is being threatened. God doesn't stop caring when something is too big Something is too small in the sense that all of a sudden we're, we're doing pretty good. Therefore, God doesn't have to help us out because we're kind of on our own. In history, see if I can put it this way. There's a story character out of history that you all heard about in some way, shape, or form. Napoleon was this tremendous general, whatever you think about him, 
you know, that's fine. But historically, he was this motivator, he was this, this inspirational leader, and yet there are multiple times in his time when he was leading France into their expansion program, there's multiple times that when he went onto the battlefield, he did suffer defeats. And when he suffered defeats, he had a pattern that when things got really bad and looked like they were going to be beaten, he would leave his army, go back to the capital, and he would publish different accounts of what was going on, and he would leave his troops. And in each one of these cases, the troops ended up having to fend for themselves or were basically annihilated. It happened when he did his invasion of Egypt. It happened when he went into Russia. It happened when he was in Spain that he bailed. Our God never bails. Our God cares at all times. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We are not on our own because we're experiencing prosperity. We are not on our own and have to fend for ourselves because we're experiencing poverty. Our God cares. He will help us in all situations. Let me give you another thought about the God really caring. He cares for his children on all levels of needs, on all level of needs. What I mean by that is this. He cared enough about, I don't mean to diminish it, but from our perspective, it's an axe head. It's an axe head. What's an axe head? You know, they don't cost that much. We could get them at any moment. But it was something critical for that person. It was a need that they had. God cared for a major problem, national security. God cared for a major problem. An army is out to arrest you. When, when does God stop caring about your needs? Okay, he cares about your needs when they are a value of $100 or more. That's not true. God cares about your problems when you lose three days of sleep. Before then, he doesn't care. That's not true. God cares for the problems of a kid who might say, please God, in his prayer, please God, keep me safe as I'm riding my bike. Then you and I say, yeah, well, yeah, that's really major, riding a bike. God cares for that child. That level of need is important to that child. It's important to God. God's level of care is for the birds of the air. And you see how many there are. God cares at all levels. It is amazing that we worship a God who cares for us, all of us, at all times, at all levels. And he knows our levels of needs. He's an amazing God. He is an absolutely God that is amazing. In fact, let's rehearse what we've already said. He cared for somebody's debt. He cared for somebody whose son needed healing. He cared for, in those stories in between, there's a famine in the land, and all of a sudden they're eating some food. Whatever is in the food, it's causing digestion problems. And he, God guides the prophet to do something, throw some flour in, whatever, nothing mystical about the flour, but all of a sudden it was taken care of. The lunch was restored. And then it goes on and talks about how during that famine period, there was somebody brought bread for the prophets and Elisha says to his prophet, go and feed those hundred men over there that came to visit us. With these, you know, it doesn't give us the amount. With these two, three loaves, we're supposed to feed a hundred? Go ahead. 
God cared for lunchtime that he multiplied the bread for these hundred of men so that they were able to eat full. God cares for all levels of our needs. That's the God we worship. That God really cares. Our God really cares for his children in many ways. The way he cares for him. What I mean by that is he makes the axe head to float. He gave insight into seeing that army so that the servant was encouraged. He sent angels to protect Elisha. He disabled the enemy army by blinding them. He gave encouragement to that man who lost the axe head. He gave encouragement to the man who was fearful of the enemy. He used hospitality, not even that miracle of hospitality, but hospitality that was supposed to be a part of the ancient Near East. He used that to help provide for the needs and make an impact. God did miracles. God orchestrated events so that they came into place at certain moments so as to impact other people. Our God provides. He cares for us in so many different ways. Sometimes it's the miraculous. Sometimes it's the mundane. Sometimes it's so phenomenal we can't help but say it's a God thing. Most of the time it happens and we don't even think, oh, God did this because it seems just so normal. But our God really cares our God really works in many ways for our needs. And of all seasons that we have to think about how God provides our needs, isn't this the season that we're supposed to stop and think about it? I was reading an account. Most of you know this man. You've heard of him. A heroic Christian figure who took care of thousands of orphans during the time that he did his preaching and then also did the ministry of having orphanages founded throughout the London area. There was one of those orphanages. One night he's with a group of kids. They are praying. They have no food whatsoever. He's praying, he's praying, he's praying, God, we don't have anything, we don't have any money, please provide. Then he stopped the kids from praying for getting, and they said, that's enough asking. Now let's thank God for what he's going to do. They went to bed. In the morning, Mueller got up, and he went to the front door to see what God had provided that he didn't know. That he tried to get the door open, and the door wouldn't open. So he went out the back of the orphanage, worked his way around the building, came to the front and realized he couldn't get the front door open because there were so much foodstuffs that were piled on the steps. Oh, they were all excited. The kids were so enthusiastic. They kept on asking, who did this? Who did this? Who did this? Mueller's response was interesting. We know who sent the baskets. We just don't know who brought them. God cared for them. You read accounts like this of a doctor and his wife in uh, uh, Schindler there in missionaries that were doing medical missions. And they had this x-ray machine, and they would do a lot of work with it. They were very dependent upon it. They met somebody from the American consulate and said, hey, listen, we have, through some of our resources, we have another x-ray machine that is portable. And we don't have any use for it anymore. We're done with what we were doing. Can we give it to you? Sure, you can give it to us. It's functional. It's great. Several weeks went by. Several months went by. It never showed up, never showed up. And they contacted their friend at the American embassy. He said, we don't know what happened to it. It must have gotten lost. It could be sitting on a dock. It could have been, you know, could have been absconded by somebody there. We've lost track of it. We don't know what it is. A couple days go by. And they're thinking, okay, we're fine. Our x-ray machine is working. And that day, the x-ray machine breaks down. And they're like, we need this. We have some people that are serious situations. We can't go any further. Within the hour, according to Schindler, within the hour, a truck pulls up with the portable x-ray machine that had been lost. Our God can provide that way. 
Our God can provide in ways that Chapman talks about how there was a time he had a family crisis, had to get to California. He sang goodbye to some of his coworkers, so a banker friend came to him to say goodbye, give him his encouragement, and the banker friend handed him an envelope. He put it in his pocket. It wasn't until he got to the the train or airport, whatever it was that he was traveling. He got to the station and he reached into his pocket and he pulled it out and here it was, it was a check that wasn't filled out but was signed with a note that said, whatever amount you need. Now wouldn't you like that for a banker friend, right? The reality is you have a God who does that. Can he use other people? Absolutely. I know this sounds odd, but one lady was writing about how God provides providentially in very strange ways. She wrote her account. It was my mother's funeral. My mother was kind and supportive. She was always there when I needed her. I knew that she prayed for me for my entire life. When she got seriously ill, my older sister had just had a new baby. My younger brother was recently married. I had no entanglements. Thus it was up to me who could devote, fully devote of taking care of mother. And it was an honor. Now she's gone. I found myself completely lost. What will I do now, Lord? I thought and felt empty and an emptiness inside. Then I looked at my brother. He sat stoically at the funeral service while clutching his wife's hand. My sister sat by her husband, cradling her baby. He held his, her, he held his arms around her. And I sat alone, so deeply grieving. Nobody noticed that. Here I was, all alone. My mother had become my closest friend. We read our Bibles together. I prepared meals. I helped her with visits to doctors. I took her for a walk. Now my job is done and I was totally alone. The service is starting. But suddenly, I heard the door in the back of the, the auditorium. It opened and closed and quick footsteps hurried along the floor. And in a moment, I saw a young man, his eyes filled with tears, sitting right next to me at the empty chair here at the front. He sniffed and he says, I'm late, I'm late. I'm sorry I'm late. The service is starting. The preacher is making his comments. The young man leaned over and said, why do they call Mary by the name of Margaret? I whispered back to him, because her name was Margaret. Nobody called her Mary. I wondered why this stranger who sat next to me interrupted my grieving with his, with his tears and fidgeting. And all of a sudden, I said to him, her name is Mary Peters. He stopped. No, no, he says, uh, this can't be right. Am I in the Methodist church? She says, no, that one's across the street. He's in the wrong funeral at the same time. This awkward situation, the solemnity of the funeral bubbled up inside of me. I couldn't help it. I began to laugh out loud. Some of the mourners threw sharp looks at me. They looked at the man sitting next to me, and then he started laughing too. I imagined my mother watching us and laughing there in heaven. After a final amen, we went together to the parking lot and some, I made comments as perhaps we'll be the talk of the town. He smiled and said, well, since I missed my real aunt's funeral, maybe we could have a cup of coffee. I agreed. A year later, we were married at a small country church. <laughs> the time we both arrived at the right place, God gave me laughter and love in my time of sorrow. Now we are celebrating our 22nd wedding anniversary. When somebody asks how we met, my husband tells them, her mother and my aunt introduced us to each other. <laughs> Thus, our match was certainly made in heaven. Can God arrange things? That's the God we worship this morning, folk. He's alive. He's real. He really, really does care. So what do we do? We need to believe in him. We need to believe that he's 
alive. We need to believe that he is real. We need to believe that he wants to help us out. The biggest help, the biggest need that we have is forgiveness of sins. Jesus repeatedly said, believe on me, believe on me, call upon me, and I will give you everlasting life. If you have never done it, believe on Christ and Christ alone to give you your greatest need, forgiveness of sin and a home in heaven. It doesn't come by a church. It doesn't come by baptism or good things you do. It comes by Jesus Christ. You need to believe on him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins, to give you eternal life. You and I who have done that, you and I who experience his provisions, you and I who experience his care week in and week out, we need to praise him. That's what this is all about, is giving him worship. That's what this celebration of Thanksgiving is supposed to be. I understand it's a fun time for family. I enjoy that as well. I understand that it's a time that we do all kinds of activities and we you know, enjoy the sin of gluttony. That's great. But we need to praise God. We need to not all of a sudden end up saying, oh my, how did, you know, how did we forget God on our list of things we appreciate the most? We're supposed to be giving him praise. We're supposed to be giving him honor. We need to as well trust him. Trust in the fact that he does care. This Thanksgiving, some of you are going through some serious situations, illnesses, financial problems, some loneliness, some trials and some troubles. You need to trust him. He really does care. It doesn't mean that he'll keep all the enemies away. It doesn't mean he won't let you go through the loss of an axe handle. It doesn't mean that your child might not die. It doesn't mean that your husband might not die and all of a sudden you find yourself with two little kids and the debtor's coming to take everything away, including the kids. But he does care. He really cares. The other thing we need to do is we need to mimic him. Before I close, let me just end with this thought, that when we look at this text, there is an illustration not only on the God level, but on the human level, what should we do? The man of God provides an illustration for us, that what we should do is we should minister to other people. We should minister to fellow disciples who have a need. Their needs may be small, maybe it's an axe head, maybe it's running out of food, maybe it's something, but we need to help them. We need to help the backslidden king who needs counsel and advice. We need to help those individuals who are questioning their faith in God. We need to show kindness to individuals who are not a part of our group. They might even be enemies. They might even be opposed to us as a person, as a nation, or as a neighbor. They may be somebody opposed to our faith, but we feed them. We use the gift of hospitality, if you would, to smother them with care. What we need to do is extend ourselves to do more this Thanksgiving weekend, this next couple weeks of Christmas, than just saying, thank you, God, for giving me and giving me and giving me. We need to give. We need to give of time. We need to give of help. We need to give of ourselves to be able to minister to others, to look out and say, who can I be a blessing to? That God cares for me, I can be used of God to care for others. How can I do that? How can I engage my kids in doing this? How can we as a couple, how can we as a family extend to, how can we as a retired individual, how can I minister to other individuals who have gone through some of the hardships that, that I've gone through? How do I help them? You and I need to remember that belief is great. 
Praising is great. Trusting, mimicking is all great in and of themselves, but together that's what God has for us. What we need to do is give praise to the Lord. And I can't help but think of that simple ditty, that simple song that was written by a dad. He wrote this song for his son who questioned his faith. His son had walked away from the Lord. His son was saying, I don't know if there's a real God. He had just gone through some crises in college and he no longer really wanted to follow the Lord. So his dad is on an airplane headed for Minnesota to preach at a Bible conference. And as he's traveling, he wrote these words. And he put this song down. And the first time I heard the song when when that man first introduced it to the public at a Bible conference I sat in as a student. He cares for you. He cares for you. Dedicated to his son who was questioning the Lord. But the simple ditty has a powerful message that God cares for us. I would like us to close with this song, singing it. And if you're here this morning and you are sitting here and saying, but I'm not sure if God really cares for me. Will God forgive me? The answer is yes. We're going to have our staff go to those doors right there. They'll be there waiting to be able to show you from the Bible what you need to do to be able to call upon the Lord this morning and ask the Lord to give you forgiveness of sins to give you assistance, to give you help. Feel free while we sing to go and talk with somebody about your walk with the Lord. Let's sing together about how God cares.